please pray with me. Lord God in heaven, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of this word that you've given to us. We thank you for showing us who you are. We thank you, thank you for showing us the way to true life. And we pray now that you would continue to conform us into the likeness of your son. In his name we pray, amen. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 2. And as you do, there is a program on public radio called The American Life. And some time ago, they ran a special report on a certain subculture of people whose prized possessions are their car stereos. They are called the decibel drag racers. And people flock across international lines even to join into the competition of the decibel drag racers. Like actual drag racing, they line the cars up across a track, except in this competition, they will not be going anywhere. The winner is the owner of the car stereo that can play the loudest possible decibel. Oddly enough, most of the cars that win this competition aren't even drivable. The world record holder at the time of the interview had 900 pounds of concrete in the floor of his van. Windshields usually crack after only two or three competitions. And yet one competitor seems entirely to miss the irony that there's no longer any room in the car for himself. We need more batteries, he laments. But that's all the room that we have. To anyone on the outside of this extreme audio sport, the word irony is perhaps a generous word to describe the phenomenon. The This American Life reporter was far more articulate when they said, everybody wants to be the king of the hill, he concluded, but the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills. So in this country, we build more hills. I'm not sure there's a better way to describe it than that. Everyone wants to be the king, especially when it comes to life. To make your own rules, to be self-determining, to pursue whatever, whoever, whenever you want. And as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus has arrived and announced the greatest of all kingdoms was at hand. It wasn't the king, kingdom of the decibel drag racers. Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. And through his words and through his actions, he is displaying that he himself is the king. And the opposition is rising. And our text today ends with a description of just how severe the opposition actually becomes when it says they held counsel on how to destroy him. Follow with me 
as we start in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. This is what it says. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? to destroy him. Jesus' ministry had begun and the cornerstone for his death was already being laid. The announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God and his associating activity displayed that he is indeed the king and this comes in very sharp contrast to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders of the day. And the, fir and the first account that we read this morning seems to be fairly innocuous as Jesus and his disciples walk through the field on the Sabbath. But in our contemporary Western mindset, it's easy for us to dismiss the significance of the Sabbath. And so consider it with me for a moment. The institution of the Sabbath and the practice of the Sabbath, which was a day set apart by God as a day of rest for the Jewish people from sunset on Friday through sunset on Saturday, was one of the two observances above everything else that set these people apart from the rest of the world. The other one, of course, being circumcision. This was one of the things that made the Jews Jewish. It was at the heart of their spiritual practice and identity. And we see it in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. God lists the fourth commandment, which is the longest of the Ten Commandments, and it reads this, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath 
to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So for the Jews, Sabbath rest consisted of ceasing from every kind of work because God rested on the seventh day himself. And he modeled this in creation and it points to a divine ordering of things. By the time of the Pharisees, the definition of what constituted work had expanded significantly and become very strict indeed. It was prohibited to plow and to hunt and to butcher and to farm like you might expect, but it was even prohibited to help one of your animals give birth or to loosen a knot or to sew and mend clothing and even to write more than one letter with a pen. This was considered by the Jews to be an eternal blessing from God and a sign of their identity as Jewish people. And so in Mark 2.23, when Jesus and his disciples walk through the field on the Sabbath day, based on the categories of understanding what work is according to the Pharisees of this time, they break two Sabbath laws. They pluck the heads of grain and they travel more than the allotted number of steps or allowed number of steps. And so the question comes in verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Which is another way of saying, why are the Jews not acting like Jews? Which is another way of saying, why are these supposed followers of Yahweh not following him in the most basic part of our spiritual identity? And Jesus responds, have you ever read what David did? when he was in need and was hungry with those who were with him back when he entered the house of God in the time of the high priest Abiathar and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for any, but the priests to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. There you need to take a step back. Jesus refers to King David all the way back over a thousand years ago in 1 Samuel 21. And just to give you a little context, David is on, on the run for his life from King Saul. And his needs were practical and his needs were great. He had no food. He had no way to defend himself. The story begins with David approaching the tabernacle at Nob. He's on the run for his life. He has nothing. He has no one except for the Lord himself. It's not a mistake that he heads in his time of need to the tabernacle. He has no one 
except for God. I wonder if you ever feel like that. Like you have tremendous need. Need that's pressing. Need that is, has no obvious way that it's going to be met. I'm not talking about wants. I'm not talking about desires for greater comfort or temptation toward luxury. I'm talking about raw, painful need. Maybe it's physical need. Maybe it's emotional need. Maybe it's a spiritual need. And you have no one that can meet those needs in your life except for the Lord. David gets to the tabernacle and he asks the priest for five loaves of bread or whatever he has on hand. (laughs) The need is great. And there's a problem. The only food that the priests have on hand is holy bread, sometimes referred to as the show bread or the bread of presence. And this is bread that is baked into 12 loaves and it's arranged into two piles of six representing the tribes of Israel on display on the table next to a bottle of frankincense as a visual reminder for everybody who enters and as a weekly food offering to God himself. Because it was an offering to God, it was reserved for the priests and only the priests to eat it at the end of the week. And so you see the dilemma. The bread is available for the one who has need, but according to the law, he isn't allowed to eat it. (laughs) And the priest gave him the bread anyway because the need was great and because David asked him to. (laughs) So let's fast forward to Jesus. The disciples had need for food. This need was in contradiction to Old Testament law because it was the Sabbath. And here's the tension, which is more important. True need or legal purity. And what does the answer to that question indicate about the nature of spiritual identity. And so Jesus' response was to point the Pharisees to the incident with David and the showbread, not just as an example, but actually as precedence. David's action points to the principle that Jesus is getting to here. You see, for David, he was God's chosen forerunner. The law was meant to serve his need, not to exacerbate that need. In the greatest of needs, David went to the Lord by going to the tabernacle. He did what he was supposed to do when you have the very greatest of needs. He relied on the one who can truly meet the need, the one who can give it. He showed his faith in the midst of trouble by clinging to God himself. The law was meant to serve the coming kingdom, not to hinder it. Likewise, The law was meant to serve the true needs of the disciples, not to exacerbate those needs. They didn't save up for food on the Sabbath, according to Jewish custom. Why? Because they were with Jesus, doing all the Jesus things. They were with the king. And so 
Their devotion to him created a different need, the need for food. What were they supposed to do? They relied on the one who could give. They showed their faith to God by clinging to God himself, who was right there among them, the Savior, Jesus. The law was meant to serve the coming kingdom, not to hinder it. And a thousand years after David eating the showbread, Jesus claims to be the one just like David, even one greater than David. And so he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Just like the previous account that we talked about last week with fasting, Jesus again indicates that the law and specifically the Sabbath was not given to produce a solemn, joyless religion. And that's basically what the Pharisees had made it to become. The law was given to help people see God more clearly, to highlight the contrast between their sin and God's holiness, and it was not given to produce a people who were enslaved. It was produced to people who would grow in holiness and faithfulness. And now Jesus puts himself squarely right in the middle of it all in the place of God himself. And he does so by saying, I am the son of man. And he does so by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If you are observing the Sabbath as a Jewish person, observing the Sabbath as part of what made the Jews Jewish, it was the core of their identity. And Jesus comes along and he says, that then everything you thought about your spiritual identity is now challenged. The thing abiding by the law that you thought put you in favor with God is now questioned because Jesus is here and God is with us. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord over the law and the Lord over all of the people. And so what is it for you, I wonder? What piece of your spiritual identity are you tempted to believe puts you in the greatest favor with God? I think we all have some temptation toward this end to have secondary or tertiary issues of identity that we elevate to the primary. What is it for you? Think about that. For some of us, it might be the notion that we're conservative. <laughs> I'm a conservative first, and I hold fast to my convictions. Maybe that's a theological conservative. Maybe it's a political conservative. 
but it's a core piece of your identity that you think brings you closer to God. For some of you, it might be considering yourself to be a loving and accepting person. I'm described in a lot of ways, but the thing that describes me the best is a loving and accepting person, and I know that's what brings me closer to God. For others, it might be your denominational identity. I'm a Baptist. I don't do that to babies like those Methodists do. Or I'm an evangelical. Or I'm a Presbyterian. Or whatever that identifier might be. Maybe for some, it's your donations to help the poor. Or maybe it's your volunteer work. Or maybe it's something else. The list can go on. And hear me, all of those are fine things. (laughs) They're good things. All of them can even be godly things, but they aren't the core of your religious identity. Why? Because the king has come. And he is the Lord over all things. Megan Phelps Roper grew up ensconced in the beliefs of her family who were part of the Westboro Baptist Church. If that name sounds familiar, you've probably seen them on the news at one point or another. The Westboro Baptist Church was a group of people who have been officially classified as a hate group as they have been known broadly across the United States for some time at picketing and protesting a variety of sensitive events and equating the tragedy of those events like the funerals of fallen U.S. soldiers or the Sandy Hook school shooting or other political events while proclaiming God's judgment upon the United States specifically for a variety of sins like homosexuality, like judgment against Jews and Muslims and even other Christian denominations. And growing up in that environment, Megan said that she truly believed that what she and her church were doing made them closer to God than everybody else. And their expressions that were widely considered to be hateful were actually, she believed, to be expressions of love as they called down judgment upon others as a warning to the rest of culture. Her spiritual identity led her to believe that she was in the right place with God through association. (laughs) And she couldn't have been more wrong. As an adult, she talks about leaving her family, leaving her legalism, and leaving the religion of solemn, joyless obligation. Has she found something better? I don't know. But what we do see as an example points us to the truth that Jesus presents himself as the only antidote to solemn, joyless religious obligation. 
your spiritual identity and standing with God is found in him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he defines your spiritual identity with God because he is the king. The next short account in chapter three is meant to illustrate the principle. It's the fifth account of rising opposition to Jesus and it comes to show that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. He had already healed on the Sabbath previously we saw in chapter one and here he's going to respond to the Pharisees' accusation very clearly for everyone to see. Picture it, try to enter into the room of the synagogue it's packed, and Jesus sees the religious leaders in the corner giving him the eye. What's he going to do today? And Jesus rose to spoke, and he calls to front a man who had a disabled hand. Chances are the man was mortified. I mean, after all, everybody already knew the man had a withered hand. But no one likes their shortcomings to be displayed for all to see. And reluctantly, he works his way through the crowd. He moves to the front, and Jesus makes the best type of spectacle out of that guy. He asks the room, while looking at the Pharisees, a two-part question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He's obviously referring to the man's hand and his great need and the opportunity to meet that need. For Jesus, it's clear that need, true need, poses a moral imperative. And if the opportunity to meet the need is there, true religion engages to meet the need where it can. The second part of the question, Jesus applies more broadly. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? Now he speaks of the greatest need. The hand is one need, but to save a life is an even greater need. And it highlights their hypocrisy all of the more. Would they be willing to meet any need at all? Would they be willing to meet even the greatest need if it conflicted with their idea of purity? And their response is stunning because they don't say a thing. The king had come. The kingdom was at hand. And those who were religious were so duty-bound to their rules that they were hard-hearted and indifferent to the needs of those around them, even if they had the greatest need. And so verse 5 says that Jesus looked at them and he was angry and grieved. And he told the man to stretch out his arm and it was healed. You see, their desire for purity led them to indifference to the needs around them. Their spiritual identity did not compel them toward actually doing good. 
It compelled them toward indifference. What does your spiritual identity compel you toward? (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. once said, it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Russian playwright Anton Chekhov once said, they say philosophers and wise men are indifferent. Wrong. Indifference is a paralysis of the soul, a premature death. But Jesus was not paralyzed, nor was he indifferent, and his true followers won't be either. And so when you take a step back and you look at the beginning of chapter two all the way through the beginning of chapter three together and you see all of these accounts of what Jesus is doing and the accusations that are mounting, you see the result is that they held counsel on how to destroy him. (laughs) It's one thing to try to marginalize somebody. It's another thing to try to silence them. It's another thing to try to imprison them, but it's, even more serious than all of those things. They wanted him dead already. And he's just getting started. In their mind, the evidence was mounting and clear. He disregarded the rabbinic custom of fasting. He ate with the sinners and the tax collectors. He healed on the Sabbath. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He himself claimed to be the Son of Man. And he even presumed to forgive sins. Accusation. And we see the reality of all of those accounts together that is highlighting the authority of Jesus as the King. Yes, he has the authority to eat with sinners, even the worst kinds of sinners. He has the authority to dispense with fasting altogether because he's the bridegroom. He has the authority to heal on the Sabbath because it is the good thing to meet needs. He himself supersedes the Sabbath as he is the Lord of it. And he even has the authority to forgive sins. The king has come and he has all authority. And Mark is showing us that Jesus' authority is clear for those who oppose him. Those who saw what he did and heard firsthand, they were there. They didn't reject Jesus because they didn't believe that he could do the things that he said. They saw it happen. They rejected him in the face of overwhelming evidence that he could do these things. They saw the lame man walk. They saw the withered hand be healed. They saw his power, they just didn't want to accept him as the king. That's the question for you. Will you accept him as the king? (laughs) Will you recognize that your true spiritual identity 
is found in submitting to Jesus as the king. Not just as the teacher, not just as the miracle worker, but the king. After Amy and I had, let me rephrase that, after Amy had given birth to each of our three children, (laughs) before you were allowed to leave the hospital, at least in the state of Massachusetts, the nurses had you bring the car seat up to the room so they could check it over to make sure that it was safe and to make sure that you knew how to secure the child safely in the car seat. And then, and only then, would they let you leave. And as many of you know, um, when you're driving home with a new baby from the hospital for the very first time, there's this, this surreal sense of awe and fear as you transport this fragile, precious cargo. I've heard it said that that moment actually pales in comparison to the fear that happens on the scary day when they turn 16 years old and you are the one handing the keys over to them to drive the car. And you move over to the passenger seat and they move over to the driver's seat. It's a big moment in your life when you hand someone else the keys. <laughs> I love the way John Ortberg describes it when he says, up until now, you've, I've been driving. I chose the destination. I chose the route. I chose the speed. You're in the drive-along seat. But if we are to change seats, if you're going to drive, that means I have to trust you. It's about control. Whoever is in this seat is the person in control. You know, a lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the ride-along seat. Because something might come up that requires his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I need some help. I want you in the car but I'm not so sure I want you to be driving the car. But if Jesus is driving, I'm not in control anymore. I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If he's driving, I'm I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If I put him in control, then it's no longer a matter of giving money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when more of it is coming into my life. Now it's his wallet. And that's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. (laughs) I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. No, it's his agenda. Now I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip and flatter and cajole and deceive and rage and intimidate and manipulate and exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. I'm fully engaged. In fact, 
As I do that, I'm even more alive than I've ever been before. But it's not my life anymore. It's his life. The king has come. And the question for me and the question for you is very simply, will you follow him as the king? Because that's where your true spiritual identity is found. When you submit to him as the king. Let's pray. Father, we all want to be the king. And if we can't, we build another hill to be the king of that hill. And yet, God, today we recognize and we thank you that a greater king and a greater kingdom has come. And so I pray for all who are here and all who listen that in the depths of our soul there would be a deep and profound surrender to the king because he is trustworthy of it. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the law, the Lord of my life. We thank you for him. Amen.